Jesus never quotes Esther. No New Testament writer ever quotes Esther. It's kind of an unusual book in that regard. And it's given some people reason to wonder if it even should be in the Bible at all. Because, I mean, a book that doesn't even talk about God uh, in the Bible seems a little unusual. And yet, that the silence or the seeming absence of God is actually one of the, the best applications that this book gives us for our lives. So let's actually look at it together in chapter 4 of Esther. And we're not going to read the first three chapters to get the story, but let me just kind of tell you the story of what's happening before we get into chapter 4 so that as we start, you'll be up to speed. The, the nation, Israel, is kind of uh, out of their country at this time, at least some of them, Esther being one. And they're in a foreign country, modern-day Iran, back then it was Persia, who, were the, who was the world power at the time. Well, the book of Esther starts with the king of Persia, uh, Ahasuerus, as is is my Bible says, yours might say Xerxes, is known by a couple of different names, but this guy was really pretty much a nut. He was a um, very eccentric, very uh, flighty, whims decided what he would do, and he decided that for six months he would have his army come and they would throw a party. And so for six months he basically showed off all the beauty of his, uh, of his town, Susa, and his officials would come, and at the end of that time he suggested that his wife, or actually commanded that his wife, the queen, come out and let uh, everybody gawk at her, how beautiful she is. He's showing off all the rest of every, everything this is. Let's show this off too. Well, she decides she's not coming. And so what does he do? He gets rid of her. And so that kind of creates a vacancy now that must be filled. Hence, in chapter 2, there is a search for a replacement queen. Well, his officials had some really bright ideas about uh, how to come up with a queen. I mean, these are wonderful qualifications. First of all, she's got to be absolutely gorgeous. And so they searched all throughout the provinces for all the gorgeous unmarried women and uh, brought them to Susa and for a year powdered and puffed them and got them all beautiful. And at the end of that time, one by one, they would go and spend the night with the king. And at, at the end of all that, when he, was, uh, he got to decide which one he wanted his queen. Hey, great. What do you think he said? He says, that sounds like a great idea, let's do it. And so that's exactly what they did. I want to show you some pictures of actually where this took place. In Iran today, you can go to this uh, big pile of dirt, which was Susa. This is actually where Esther and um, Xerxes and all these others that we're going to talk about were there today. And let's look at the next slide. You can see how raised it is. This, it's hard to get the dimensions of it. This was a huge city, the capital city. You can see a river running down right here. And in the next slide, you can see with color how lush this area was. So this is Susa. This is where the setting of the story we're going to read today. Now, I want to show you some other pictures from another town, but this gives you a good impression of what the culture was like. They've actually unearthed in another city, Xerxes' harem. This is his harem, as they have found it and as they have restored it. 
and then just uh, next door is the palace. You can see in the next slide, the front, it almost kind of looks like a college dormitory. You know, you, you can you just imagine these young girls running in and out and giggling the whole time, but they were all concubines, just, a, just harem, an object for this, uh, for this king. And the next slide you get, a, there's a relief. This is on the doorway as you walk in. This is a picture of Xerxes himself walking into the harem. So if you were a woman who happened to be part of this group, every time you'd walk in, you'd get a reminder of why you were there. And there's also another picture on the other side of the building of uh, Xerxes killing a lion. So I guess this is to show how uh, strong and studly he is for all the women whom he is to impress. Well, it's at this point in this culture that we're introduced to Esther. Esther was a Jew who was raised by her uncle named Mordecai. They were in Persia, in exile from Israel, and Esther, being one of the most beautiful women there in the nation, was taken into this harem. And she, not because of her beauty, but the text bends over backwards to tell us it's because of her character. She found favor with those with whom she was around because of her character, and consequently, God sovereignly had Esther become queen. But we're introduced to a major problem here. Nobody knows Esther's a Jew. Everybody knows that her uncle, Mordecai, is a Jew. And there's a guy named Haman, who's a bigwig in the king's officials, of the king's officials, who hates the Jews because this one man, Mordecai, won't bow down in front of him. And so he decides we're going to have all the Jews wiped out. You got your first holocaust here in the Bible. And the king sure says, hey, let's go along with it. Sounds great. Again, remember, he's the guy who just goes on a whim. You bet. Sounds great. And so there's a decree, an edict written to where all the Jews are wiped out. But they don't know that the queen is a Jew. So that kind of sets up the story of where we are in the first three chapters. So now let's look in chapter four as we get more and more impressed with Esther's character and how one person can have such an incredible influence. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out to the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. And he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and all her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Here in America, in the West, we are such an individualistic society that even in our mourning and grieving and in our hurting, we crawl off by ourselves and look our own wounds. We don't grieve publicly. Funerals, even funerals, we hold it all in. We don't really show our feelings and emotions. We, we grieve privately. But in the East, in this culture, just as Mordecai did, they even still today will very public about their religion. You go to the East today and you'll see people standing in the middle of the street praying. Okay, you see that that's common. You see that here in America, and you think he's a nut. 
Over there, it's just the way it, the way it was. But uh, very, very public mourning, and Esther as well, when she hears about this, she is in great anguish. But then look at verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hatak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go in to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Then Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Esther hears the bad news and doesn't know why this is happening. Goes and asks Mordecai, Mordecai tells her why. And then he not only tells her why, but he says, And now, you need to use your place of influence there as queen to go in and to beg for the life of your people. Notice it calls them her people. Not to say beg for the Jews, beg for us, but beg for your own people. But there's a problem with going in before the king and doing this. Verse 10 tells us, Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. Esther's concern here is, uh, I guess, a natural one. She says, you only go to the king when you're called for. You don't go to the king because you want to see him. You go to the king because he wants to see you. And Esther's not dumb. I mean, she understands that this situation is probably a lot like Dave Campos' situation is with the Cowboys right now. And everybody's excited about this brand new coach. But what does history tell you about that position? How, what kind of job security do you think he's got? Well, Esther was the same way. She knew that this queen had been... Had been uh, Ditched the queen before her had been ditched because she because the queen crossed the king, and what is Esther told here to do? To go in uninvited against the law, and to cross the king. She she knows that not only can she be booted out of being queen, but she can also be killed because that's the law. So there's a risk. But notice what Mordecai tells her. It's an excellent response, and probably the most oft-quoted verses in this entire book, verse 13 and 14. Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's a great statement. Essentially, Mordecai tells her, you got nothing to lose here, Esther. 
you're going to die if you don't go in there because you're a Jew. Even though you're a queen, you're still a Jew. And when they find out you're a Jew, you're going to die just like the rest of us. You've got nothing to lose. Plus, he says, um, maybe you've even become royalty for such a time as this. And though Esther, the book of Esther never says that he is looking to the Lord and that God has sovereignly placed her there, because of the context of Israel's history, because of the context of the rest of the Bible, you know exactly that is what Mordecai is saying. He's saying, you're not there by accident, Esther. You're there because, in a place of influence that you may have influence. Now, I want to show you something that's a little off the beaten path, as it were, but it has a great tie-in to exactly what we're talking about here. Have you ever wondered, I know you haven't, but I'll ask you anyway, have you ever wondered why God put Israel where they are? You ever wonder why he gave them this little sliver of land that doesn't have, you know, the great Nile River, doesn't have the great Euphrates, has this little eight-foot-wide Jordan River? It's not that great geographically. Most everything has to be imported. Why do you give them that little sliver of land? Well, there's several good reasons, but one in particular that's important for us to know this morning. When you got a superpower down here named Egypt, and you got another superpower that changed names a bunch up here in this, this area, when these two countries want to trade, talk, or fight, how are they going to get to one another? Well, they're not going to cross the Arabian Desert. They'd never make it. They've got to come down through here. Israel was placed where they are because that was the travel route of the nations. They had to go down through that area. In fact, even when the Greeks came into the picture, Alexander came down through this way. Now look closer here. This next slide. Uh, you can see, here's the Mediterranean. This is Israel. You had to travel down this main road. Otherwise, you're in swamps over here or you're in mountains over here. The only way these superpowers could travel back and forth between one another was to go straight down this particular highway. And on that highway, geography forced them to come through these three cities that are yellow. Now you say, well, so what? Well, the emphasis is that that was part of what God had given to Israel. And the people who controlled those cities controlled trade, controlled taxes. You could set up toll booths there. Uh, and controlled the armies that would go through. If you controlled that highway, essentially you controlled the world because the two superpowers were there. But what did Israel do when they first came into the land? They didn't take this highway area. They retreated back up into the hills. They didn't want to go down and claim what God had given them. Instead, they backed up into the hills and let the unbelievers in the land continue to have influence along that highway. Consequently... The world had a great bunch of influence until Solomon came along and he went down and he conquered all of those cities. Why do you think Israel was at its apex of prosperity and world influence during the time of Solomon, even more so than David? Because Solomon recognized God had sovereignly placed them there for that reason. He took those cities and they had influence in the entire world because of that. Now how does that relate to us? Well, this is a very big and broad picture of something that is true of you in a very real sense. That God has sovereignly placed you where he has placed you, 
not by accident, but that you might have influence wherever you are. It's exactly what happened here with Esther when he says, who knows that you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Mordecai is saying, Esther, it's not an accident that you are where you are. It's not an accident that, that out of all of the women, they would, they would choose a foreigner and they would choose you. For such a time as this, it is not an accident. I think that is the point that is to be looked at. Was there risk? Indeed there was risk. But here's the question. Do you have a cause worth dying for? Did Esther have a cause worth dying for? You bet. It was the preservation of her people. Do you and I have a cause worth dying for? Sure we do. What is that cause? That the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. Not by your good works, not by your good looks, but simply by His grace. And he, go, and he tells us that now that we know that, once you've accepted that, the place of influence that he has sovereignly placed you, you are to influence. You're not to retreat and hide in the hills like Israel did and let the world have that influence. Instead, you are to go down and you are to get involved where God has placed you, that you might have the influence and to be able to share that good news. So do you have a cause worth dying for? Yes, you do. Do we really believe that? I think we do. Do we live that? <laughs> I don't think we do. You think about Peter, and you can think about yourself. You think about me. Or I'll think about me. You think about yourself. Peter, what was his deal? You know, on the night before Jesus died, Jesus told all the disciples, you're all going to desert me. What did Peter say? Oh, no, I would never do that. In fact, he says, Lord, I'll even die for you. I'm willing to die with you. And, of course, Jesus says, oh, really? I got news for you. Something else is going to happen tonight, Peter. And before the denial, Peter denied Jesus, the guy who said he was willing to die for Jesus Christ goes into the garden with Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, James, John, come over here and pray with me. Boy, I'm really down. They say, yeah, you bet, sure, Lord. Jesus starts praying, and Peter, James, and John, what do they do? They fall asleep. The guy who's willing to die for Jesus is not willing to pray. And I find that very instructive in our lives. Because I would, I'd say there's probably very few people that would not stand up here and say, you know what? What the Bible stands for and what Jesus Christ teaches is worth dying for. Probably very few would, would stand up and say, nah, I don't think that. Most of us would probably say that. And yet how many of us say willing to die and yet we're not willing to pray? How many of us are willing to die but we're not willing to get up a little earlier? How many of us are willing to die but we're not willing to love our wives or love our husbands or love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, if you're not willing to do these small things, you're not willing to die. What happened with Peter? Oh, Lord, I'm willing to die. What happens right after that when he had the opportunity to die? And the soldiers say, hey, you were with that guy that we we're going to kill. What did Peter say? He reached down into his fisherman's vernacular and pulled out his curse words. And he began cussing and just to show that he's not a religious idiot that would follow this Messiah. He wasn't willing to die. Wasn't willing to pray. 
Do you have a cause worth dying for? Yes, you do. Yes, we do. And if our cause is worth dying for, then our cause is worth living for. You die to self. And in a marriage relationship, in a, in a relationship between husband and wife, that man's got to die every single day. You die to yourself, husband. You die to yourself. When you love that woman like Christ loved the church, and you bite your tongue, and you honor her in front of others and don't cut her down. Wives, on the other hand, do you die to yourself? Is your cause worth dying for? Hold up what's right. Do you respectfully submit to that man, even when you disagree with him? Not on what's right and wrong, but on directions that should be taken. If you're a single person, do you devote your entire life? Is your single devotion to the Lord? Are you married to Jesus Christ? Because you see, the scripture tells us that either as married people or as single people, that our desire is to die, our desire ought to be to die to self. Is our cause worth dying for? Yes. Then it's also worth living for. And to live dying to self. This is what Paul meant when he said, um, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live any longer. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is there a risk? Yes. Do you have a cause worth dying for? Yes. Then die. We're going to be hearing about the census, of course, in the next few months, if you haven't already heard about it. Um, every ten years rolls around, and we count America, and we're going to be shocked at how America's grown and it'd be real easy, not only in America, but to look at the billions that are in the world and then to look at yourself and think, I am just one of billion, billions of people here on this planet. And God has gifted people. I look at people, how God has gifted individuals. God has given them a much greater place of, in, of influence. God has given them much better gifts than me. He's given them, you know, you just keep going about how everything is wrong with you. Boy, this is what happened in my past. You know, I've got a past. Everybody's got a past. Everybody's got sins. The people that have the great influence whom you admire, they've got a past. But it's so easy to look at them and to say, I'm nothing. And with all this incredible uh, depravity in the world, to think, boy, there's nothing I can do to really make a significant difference in this world. The influence of one person really can't make that much of an influence. I recently read something from Chuck Swindoll that I modified just a little bit to get what I think is a really great principle that this text teaches, and that's this, that it's not until we believe one person can make a difference, we will risk making a difference. If you don't really believe that anything you do is going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, then you know what? You won't do anything. And I challenge you to think, have you done anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, or does the Lord Jesus Christ just do for you? And if you've never done anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, then more than likely you don't really believe that he can work through you. I want to read you something that's going to rock your socks. In 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. That was a crucial vote. In 
1776, one vote gave America the English language instead of German. One vote. Das ist aber was. That is very good. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union. One vote, and we're here. In 1868, one vote saved Andrew Johnson from impeachment. 1875, one vote changed France from a monarchy to republic. 1876, one vote got Rutherford B. Hayes the presidency. 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. And in 1941, one vote saved the United States draft or the Selective Service only 12 weeks before Pearl Harbor. Can one person make a difference? There's a great anonymous poem that I hope every one of you have heard. If not, uh, I want to read it to you again anyway. It's called One Solitary Life, and it's a profound look at one solitary life. He was born in an obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop till he was 30. He, was, he never held an office, never had a family or owned a house, didn't go to college, had no credentials but himself. He was, only, uh, he was only 33 when the public turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing. He was laid in a borrower's grave. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. You say, yeah, but Jesus was God. That kind of gives him an edge of having an influence. You know that's true. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, whom do you have living inside of you? But God. In fact, Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, uh, of his, those who believe in him are going to do even greater things. You know, somebody asked me not long ago, do you really think you're going to do any good in Russia? Do you really think in a country that big, you know Russia has as many churches as the city of Dallas. The nation of Russia has as many churches as the city of Dallas. You really think you're going to do any good over there? And if I didn't think that the influence of a few people could do something, not only would I not go there, but I wouldn't stand here. Because the work of God and the Word of God is a big joke if it doesn't really change lives. You and I have been called for such a time as this. God has sovereignly placed you where He has placed you, not by accident, but so that you can not hide up in the mountains, but that you can go down and take the cities, the influence, that highway as if it were, and have an influence where He has put you, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your church, in Denton, in Texas, in the United States, on this planet. No holes barred. You can have an influence if you will simply allow God to work through an imperfect person. Hey, look, God works through an imperfect person. Me. God can work through an imperfect person. You. If you will only let him. 
Look at Esther's response in verse 15. It's an excellent response. She says, uh, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go in to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded. If I die, she says, at least I die doing the right thing. Esther models a great principle for us here. Because she knows the providence of God. She's been placed there for a particular reason. And yet... She never presumes upon providence, but prepares plans with prayer. We should do the same. Yeah, God sovereignly placed you where you are. Yeah, God can use you. But don't presume upon providence. Even Esther, who knew she was there for such a time as that, spent three days and told everybody to spend three days fasting. What do you do when you fast? You're not talking about dieting. You're praying. That's what they're doing preparing uh, the plans of God's providence with prayer. And we won't read the end of the story. The rest of the book goes on. Uh, Esther would make a great movie. I've never seen a movie of Esther done well. A few biblical stories are done well. But uh, it's so riveting. It's such a great story. and, And I won't tell you the end of it, except just to tell you that it turns out great. It's amazing how God can take a, pro- a situation that looks absolutely bleak and hopeless and through his providence can turn it out to be exactly the way it needs to be. A long time ago, there was a guy named William Coper. 32 years old, was so depressed he decided to kill himself. He hired a carriage to take him to the Thames River. When they got there, the carriage driver figured out what he was going to do and uh, grabbed him and wouldn't let him do it, took him back to his house. Uh, While he was in his house, he tried to take poison. Somebody happened to walk in, saw that he had taken the poison, gave him the antidote, and he didn't die. After the guy left, he took a knife and he tried to fall on the knife. Would you believe it? The blade broke. This really happens. The next morning, he tries to hang himself, and after he hangs himself, a neighbor just walks in and goes, Hey! And cuts him down. Time after time, this guy tries to kill himself, and God wouldn't let it happen. William Coper ended up being a guy who wrote incredible hymns. In fact, this depression, instead of figuring out that he couldn't kill himself, he gave his life over to the Lord Jesus Christ and slowly, slowly began growing, and the Lord changed his life and began to heal him. And he wrote a hymn that I'd like to read part of it to you. It's great. This is one of the most famous ones he wrote. It says... God moves in mysterious ways, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble senses, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. What do you and I see in our lives? We see the frowning providence. Oh God, where are you? My life's terrible. The frowning providence is what Esther saw. And yet, why was there a smiling face? Or if I could come back to the question initially I asked, 
How can Esther be Scripture when it doesn't even mention God? The answer to that is a great application for our lives. Because you may not see God working in your life, and yet you know He is. You don't see God working here in Esther except through the repeated coincidences that all lead to the Jews' deliverance. You can look back in your life just like I can look back in mine. And while at the time we didn't think God was there at all, yet we can look back and see how like William Coper would have destroyed himself if it were left up to him and yet God preserved him. You think God's kept you alive for nothing? I know there's some of you who've tried to take your life. You think God has pre pre uh, preserved you for nothing? That he's allowed you to drive up here? That he allows you to ever drive to Dallas and make it back? It is not an accident. God has preserved you and has you here today for such a time as this, that wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, you are there to influence. You're not there to retreat and hide from the world up in the mountains, but you're there to influence, like Esther realized. So whether your gift is beauty, like it was for Esther, whether your gift is computers, whether your gift is people, whether your gift is children, wherever you are particularly gifted, whatever it is you particularly do, God has given you that, that you may be there as a source of influence. Not to be silent, but to be heard. And God will use you if you'll let Him. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you today for just a brief look at one of the godly women in the Bible, Esther. And no, she wasn't perfect, just like none of us are. She struggled with doing the right thing, just like all of us do. But Lord, when it came down to it, she was willing to die for her cause. I pray that each of us here today who would believe the truth of this book would bow before you and say, yes, I'm willing to die. Not only that, I'm willing to live and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, help us to be influential where you have providentially placed us. Not by accident, not by our choosing, but you have sovereignly placed us where we are that we may not be silent, but that we may speak and that you may work through us. Lord, we love you today and ask for the strength that we might be influential in this lost world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.